Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello, and welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. This is Episode 2, The Theology of Work. In Episode 1, among other things, I spoke of my view that the Church needs to develop a theology of work in order to enable it to prophetically critique the reality of work in human life as well as the economic and political philosophies by which that reality is underpinned. But the Church also needs to develop a theology of work in order for Christians to recognize the Church's own participation in that reality as an employer of human labor, including the processes through which human dignity is undermined by the experience of work in an institutional context. In other words, a theology of work is required so that the Church might simultaneously be both critic and penitent. Unfortunately, no such theology as a systematic articulation of the Christian perspective on the nature and role of work, as well as the just distribution of labour and its rewards, exists. To be sure, various theologians have proposed the frameworks around which a theology of work might be constructed, and it is my hope that future episodes will, among other things, offer a review of their proposals. Likewise, it could be argued that as a consequence of instruments like papal encyclicals, as well as the influence of the Church's teaching in areas such as social justice, that a kind of de facto theology of work is already in place. Unfortunately, and regardless of the extent to which such things directly or indirectly address the reality of work and its associated groundings in politics and economics, the absence of an actual theology of work represents a critical flaw in the Church's engagement with the modern world. In other words, the Church cannot offer a coherent critique and ethic of work in a vacuum, and the absence of a comprehensive and systematic theology of work represents just such a vacuum. This is critical because the Church must take seriously the reality of work in human life, and everything which that reality implies both for the universal human dignity proclaimed by the Gospel, as well as the Church's ministry to the world. The point being that the world to which the modern Church is called to minister is a world in which work, waged labour, has come to occupy a powerful and powerfully destructive place. In the world of industrialised and internationalised economy, Work is not merely a means for ensuring our physical survival, financial security, 
or consumer satisfaction. Rather, work has come to occupy the central position in human self-understanding and validation. Work has almost entirely colonised humanity's daily existence. Moreover, in a world which is becoming increasingly fragmented and isolated, the workplace has for many become the primary social space within which they encounter and interact with other human beings. Finally, in a world in which waged labour has become the dominating paradigm of human self-assessment, terms like unemployed are now thoroughly pejorative. Those who lack work, or who emphasise other forms and ways of being that do not give priority to waged labour, are often demonised as parasites, feeding off the rest of honest and hard-working society. In other words, modernity has come to assume the form of a landscape in which waged labour is viewed as the only valid employment with which human time can be occupied. And yet, despite the centrality which work has assumed in human life, it is also a reality beset by a profound paradox. A paradox so deep as to amount to a spiritual and existential crisis. The common experience of modern humanity is that despite its centrality, work has become less secure and less accessible. It is subject to ever more powerful forces of market movement and technological innovation that lie well beyond the control of any worker or group of workers. And the very nature of work within industrialised economies has changed from one of skilled craftsmanship through machine-dominated mass production to information collation and analysis. Agriculture and manufacturing, once the mainstays of Western economic life, now occupy a minority status within an economic landscape dominated by the service, information and technology sectors. Moreover, the ever more efficient and productive possibilities of computerization and automation raise, at least in the minds of some theorists, the possibility of the human worker becoming permanently redundant in the not-too-distant future. It is this perfect storm of contradiction, of on the one hand the centrality of work in human life, and on the other hand of the forces which make that centrality highly problematic, that demands of the Church that it develop a theology of work that addresses work's meaning, significance, and consequences. Only once this is done can the Church hope to meaningfully critique the reality of work and the political and economic assumptions by which ideologies of work are sustained. It is only within the framework of a theology of work that the Church can hope to articulate a specifically Christian ethic of work as well as meaningfully address the impact of work from an authentically Christian perspective. It hardly needs saying that a theology of work would necessarily emerge from who Christians say God is, 
how the relationship between God and humanity operates, and the directive purpose to which that relationship points. In other words, an operative theology of work would not be a standalone phenomenon, somehow separate from the rest of Christian theology. Rather, it would reflect what the whole of Christian theology, what the whole of the Christian faith grounded in the scriptural witness, asserts about God, humankind, and creation. An example can be drawn from the Gospel according to Luke. It records an occasion when Jesus was teaching in a synagogue one Sabbath, when a woman who was crippled to the extent of being bent double appeared. Jesus called her to him, then healed her of her affliction, whereupon she immediately began to rejoice. When the leaders of the synagogue remonstrated with Jesus for having performed a healing act on the Sabbath, for having worked on a day that was meant to be set aside as a day of rest, Jesus rebuked them, reminding them that even on the Sabbath they performed tasks such as watering and feeding their farm animals. How much, therefore, should the Sabbath be a day in which humankind is liberated from the forces by which human life is deformed and enslaved? Now, the point of this story is not, to my mind at least, the supernatural event of the miraculous healing, much less any arguments over the validity or otherwise of the narrative's recounting of this event. Rather, it is the liberating solidarity which Jesus embodies and displays toward the crippled woman, so that she is released from her bondage and its dehumanizing consequences. For the reality of her crippling illness, which forces her to spend her days looking at the ground, is that it alienates her from the rest of society. It pushes her to the margins and excludes her from relationship with others. But Jesus' response is to once again draw her into the centre of community and relationship, to overcome her exclusion and set her free from the bonds of dehumanising loneliness. The crippled woman's healing is an act of restoration that eliminates her alienation from others, an embodied proclamation of divine love which overcomes the alienation from God that is the product of human sin. And this issue of alienation must lie at the heart of the Church's response to the reality of work in human life, precisely because the two most preeminent architects of modern economic theory, Adam Smith and Karl Marx, regarded alienation as an inevitable consequence of waged labour in an industrialised economy. Both Smith and Marx understood alienation to be the dehumanisation of work and of the human worker, that is to say, the reduction of work and those who work to the status of a tradable commodity, so that work becomes not an end in itself, but as the means to ends, such as profitability and efficiency, that have nothing to do with the working person's own humanity. Moreover, 
Not only did Smith and Marx regard alienation as inevitable, they both believed it was essentially inescapable. According to Smith, only those persons who possessed sufficient wealth to not have to work could escape this alienation. While Marx argued that alienation could only be overcome by working people themselves taking control of the means of production, even if that meant doing so through violence. Any number of studies suggest that most people find their experience of work to be profoundly dissatisfying and dehumanising, for a whole series of reasons, ranging from the banality of the work they perform to the absence of any meaningful control over working conditions. So prevalent is this experience that many people regard it not merely as something to be endured, but as a normative fact in human life. But this is precisely where the aforementioned passage from Luke cuts across both Smith and Marx and the experience of work in modernity. In his encounter with the woman bent double, Jesus' response to her is a strident declaration that alienation is not normative, that it is in fact an aberration, the deforming operation of evil forces that distort human life. And this very declaration opens the woman bent double to a new reality, a reality of dignity and liberation. Moreover, this new reality is not the result of either an escape or a revolution engineered by human power. Rather, it is the direct result of the loving solidarity of God, embodied in Christ, which enters into the heart of her blighted existence, bringing reconciliation, restoration, and relationship. The upshot of all this is that any theology of work, in order to be an authentic proclamation of the gospel, and thus a genuinely Christian critique and ethic of work, must seek to gear human life within the realm of work toward reconciliation, restoration, and relationship. Such a theology of work will make clear the Christian understanding that the healing and restoration which Jesus embodies in the Gospel witness are not pie-in-the-sky compensations for miseries suffered on earth. They are the work of the here and now, the labour of embodying and making real in the present that foreshadowing of the kingdom to come. Or, as Christians declare in the Lord's Prayer, the Father's will being done on earth as in heaven. And it is the church that is tasked with this labour. But the church can only proclaim the gospel into the reality of work from the basis of a genuine theology of work, a comprehensive critical reflection on the nature of work and its consequences for the relation of humanity to God, to itself, and to the whole of creation. Moreover, such a reflection cannot be limited to describing the role of work within creation. It must articulate the meaning of work within God's purpose for creation. A genuinely Christian theology of work must be both vocational, 
that is, understanding work as part of humanity's co-creativeness with God, as well as eschatological, which is one of those technical theological terms that I said I would try to keep to a minimum. Essentially, what eschatological means is that any theology of work, in order to be genuinely Christian, must locate work within the divine scheme of salvation, which Christians argue forms the directive purpose of creation itself. Finally, and as I indicated in the last episode, I think it necessary that the Church develop a theology of work not just so that it can meaningfully engage modern humanity's primary reality, but in order for the Church to reflect upon its own status as an employer and its own complicity in the dehumanizing potentials of work. Such reflection can only occur through a theological framework that holds the Church accountable to the same prophetic and redemptive word which God speaks to the secular world of work. In the reading from Luke, Jesus attacks the hypocrisy of religious leaders who, even on the Sabbath, liberate their animals so that they might be fed and watered, but who object to Jesus liberating a daughter of Abraham so that she might be freed from oppression and humiliation. If the church fails to develop a theology of work from which it can reflect upon and critique its own conduct as an employer, as well as its membership of and contribution to wider economic and social life as a community of workers, the world will rightly dismiss the church's critiques of work, economic policy and industrial relations as hypocritical and self-serving. Such a theology of work will demand of the church a significant commitment to truth-telling up to and including a recognition of the ways in which dissenting voices within the church are silenced through means and processes that frequently reflect the worst abuses of the secular corporate environment. In the final analysis, modernity and its narrative of the autonomous individual encourages us to appeal to our own activist spirit, to correct by our own power the ailments that afflict our essential selves. The extent to which the Church itself has succumbed to this narrative may be reflected in the many acts of power by which the Church attempts to correct the ailments of its inner spirit. But the reading from Luke calls us to present ourselves not before the idol of our own presumption, but before the compassion of Christ who sees our crippled spirit and who invites us into healing and redemption. The identification of the deforming impact of work is embodied in Jesus noticing the woman bent double. God's prophetic judgment upon that deforming impact is represented both by the healing act and the rebuke to the religious leaders, and the reconciling work of that judgment is rendered in the joyful solidarity which the healed woman shares with the rest of the people in their praise of God. If the world of work is to experience the fruits of healing, justice and liberation 
which are proclaimed in the reading from the Gospel according to Luke that I have mentioned in this episode, then the development of a theology of work is one of the Church's most critically important tasks. A theology of work properly conceived and developed will enable all Christian traditions to not only speak into the reality of work, but to understand their own identity as communities of people who work. Thus the need for healing, which we understand to be present within human work, will come to be understood as our need also. And this shared understanding will enable the kind of truth-telling that provides a place for the wounded healers among us, which models the way work causes and perpetuates harm, and which encourages the Christian community to bear witness to Christ's healing grace. Jesus commissioned all those who would follow him to take the good news into the world and into all the realities of human life. The failure of the Church to engage the centrality of work in modernity is a failure to live up to that commission. But the opportunity to develop a theology of work not only represents a faithful recommitment to that commissioning, it also enables positive response to the justice, reconciliation and peace to which Christ invites us, the heavenly shalom that sees our crippled spirit and which commands us to be crippled no more, made whole and new by the love of God. You will note that I titled this episode The Theology of Work, not A Theology of Work. That's because I wanted to talk about the subject itself, that is to say, about the theology of work and why it is important the Church develop such a theology, rather than propose what such a theology might look like in its details. Hopefully the sum total of this podcast across all its episodes will help achieve that latter task. And it is in any case my intention to explore what a theology of work might involve in future episodes. But that, I'm afraid, concludes today's episode. I hope to have the pleasure of your company in future. This has been another episode of Ergasia. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of work, faith, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.